Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 to 26. Now I want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose, I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. The first time I realised that politicians are a special breed of people was in 1996. It was after John Howard led the Liberals to win the election. But after the election, suddenly he was talking about core promises versus non-core promises. I was only 16 at the time and I was shocked that a Prime Minister could make promises that he didn't even intend to keep. Since that time, either I've become less naive or things have gone downhill in Canberra, because now I find myself assuming that every promise a politician makes is a non-core promise. That's not really fair, is it? But it does feel like weasel words and especially spin is the norm. We expect politicians to spin the facts to their own advantage. One journalist recently wrote about all the fighting over tax cuts and both sides of politics, and he said, Today, spin rules. Crafting a broad, plausible narrative is less important than telling a personally appealing story about how individual voters will gain from what government's doing today. We're so used to spin from our leaders that we accept it and even expect it, and not just from Canberra. I think we now expect it from all sorts of people, businesses, organisations, and even celebrities. So I reckon when we read what Paul writes here to the Philippians, it's quite possible we're thinking, is Paul for real? He's in prison And people are trying to stir up trouble for him. And he says he's rejoicing. And then Paul talks about the future. He says his trial is coming up where he could well face the death death penalty. And he says he'll go on rejoicing. I think we could easily find ourselves wondering, is Paul for real? Or is this just him trying to put a positive spin on a disaster? But if you know Paul from his life and his writings, you'll realize this isn't spin. There's something much deeper going on. Paul's joy is real despite his circumstances. Paul is talking about some things here that matter more to him than his freedom and even more than his life. 
And if you know what really matters to Paul, and if the same things also matter to you, then Paul's example here doesn't seem fake at all, or odd, or illogical, or fanatical. He seems radical, yes, but also someone who inspires us to think and live like him. Later in this letter, that's exactly what Paul tells the Philippians to do. In Philippians 3.17, he says, Join together in following my example. And in Philippians 4.9, he says, Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Which means for us today, we're not just studying Paul as an interesting person. He's a role model for the Philippians, and he's a role model for us still today. He's a role model of what really matters in life. So today we're going to look at what really matters to Paul, and we'll start to think about what really matters to us, but we'll just touch on it today, and over the rest of the letter, week by week, we'll see it in much more detail. Today we pick up things at verse 12. Last week I told you that Paul follows the usual conventions for letter writing, but at each step they're transformed by the gospel. We see the same thing today. In this kind of letter, a letter of friendship, there would often be something at this point that was supposed to relieve anxiety in the person who's receiving the letter. So they've dug up letters that go like this. Apollinarius to Thaisus, his mother and lady, many greetings. Before all, I pray for your health. I myself am well and make supplication for you before the gods of this place. And here's the bit to relieve anxiety. I wish you to know, mother, that I arrived in Rome in good health on the 25th of the month. Or here's another example. Isis to Thermuthion, her mother, many, very many greetings. I make supplication for you every day before the Lord Serapis and his fellow gods. I wish you to know that I have arrived in Alexandria safe and sound. Paul follows the same pattern almost word for word, but notice how he goes about relieving their anxiety. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Do you see what really matters to Paul? It really matters to him that the gospel advances. It really matters that the gospel advances. He doesn't say to the Philippians, don't worry, the prison food is okay. He doesn't say, don't worry, I'm well, or I'm handling the lack of freedom just fine. He says, don't worry, all is not lost. It's the opposite, in fact. Me being in prison is actually helping the gospel advance. This is what really matters to him. And clearly, he thinks it's what should really matter to the Philippians. And we'll see why it really matters to him a bit later on. But for now, look at how his imprisonment really is advancing the gospel. Verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. It seems every Roman soldier who gets the duty of guarding Paul also gets the privilege of hearing the gospel, maybe whether they want to or not. They get to hear how Jesus died and rose again and that Jesus is actually Lord of all not Caesar, and that he's saviour of anyone who turns to him, whether they're a Jew or a Roman. They get to hear of the hundreds who saw Jesus alive after death. And they get to hear Paul's own story too, of how he once hated followers of Jesus and tried to destroy them until Jesus himself appeared to him and completely turned his life around. I reckon a shift guarding Paul would fly by and would have 
been pretty memorable. And as these soldiers are chatting to each other and to all sorts of other people in Rome, it's become widely known that Paul's in prison for Christ. It's almost like Paul is a a Trojan horse in the heart of Rome. Some people have tried to shut him down by putting him him in prison, but instead the gospel has been brought into the very heart of the Roman Empire. And while Paul is chained down, the gospel is advancing. In the second last verse of this letter, Paul writes, All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The gospel's advanced even to people in Caesar's household. It's unstoppable. Paul's not putting a positive spin on this. He's not denying that prison is awful. Later on he says he's suffering. But the point is that what matters to Paul more than his comfort, more than his freedom, is that the gospel advances no matter what. And he's prepared to sacrifice comfort and freedom and even more to see that happen. But there's another way Paul's imprisonment is advancing the gospel. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You'd think putting someone in prison would be a great way to scare others into being silent and and not advancing the gospel. But Paul says it's having the opposite effect. His example is encouraging others on, partly because he's a role model of not being afraid and partly because people are seeing that the gospel really is unstoppable. Paul's example, it still inspires us today. Examples of Christians throughout history, they inspire us. And examples of Christians in our own time, they inspire us too. Seeing the example of the prince, doesn't it inspire you to partner with them in seeing the gospel advance? Prince will tell you that they're just ordinary people. And you know what? I believe them. They are. And that's what makes them so inspiring. What makes them so suitable for giving themselves to God's work in Cambodia is not that Wim speaks 30 different languages or whatever it's up to at the last count, French, Khmer, Dutch, Klingon, whatever it is. What makes them so inspiring is not that Micah is so driven and self-confident. What makes them such a powerful example is that they see what really matters with clarity. They see just how extraordinary Christ is. And so they see that what really matters is that the gospel advances. And doesn't their example inspire you to share their clarity on what really matters? Steph's example did the same for me, our past link missionary who passed away. But also the example of many of you you here today does exactly the same for me too. Recently, I've, I've heard a few of you telling me how when you told your family that you became a Christian, it didn't go down well. It went badly. And I've heard stories about how you've told your workmates or your friends about Jesus, some that went well, some that didn't. But your example of wanting to see the gospel advance, it's contagious. It it inspires others to get out there too. Paul goes on to say at this point that his, his imprisonment is encouraging like that for some people to speak about Jesus. But actually some of the people are speaking about Jesus for terrible reasons. They're doing it out of selfish ambition because they want to stir up trouble for Paul. Some Christians in Rome didn't like Paul. They felt he had the wrong emphasis. Maybe it was because he wasn't Jewish enough in his approach. Whatever it was, 
having Paul out of the way in prison seemed to them like an opportunity. They're thinking that by seeing people become Christians and getting the numbers, they can claim legitimacy and rub it in Paul's face. They want to outdo him to prove a point. You still see versions of this today, people trying to out-Christian others to prove their legitimacy. Their motivations are twisted, and in their hearts they think that what really matters is their cause and not Christ's cause. But look at how Paul reacts to their weird behaviour. Verse 18, he says, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Preached, And because of this, I rejoice. Now, again, this isn't spin. Paul can genuinely rejoice. Not in their awful motivation, not in their nastiness towards him. He rejoices that the gospel is advancing even though their motives are bad. Popularity is not what matters to Paul. Having people swan after him, being the top dog, having people like him, these things are not what really matters to Paul. Seeing the gospel advance is what really matters. And he's willing to see his reputation dragged through the mud as long as the gospel is out there. This is a great example for us today. There are real differences between churches. It's dishonest to pretend that we're absolutely all on the same page. And and it's a waste of time, actually. But just because there's real differences, it doesn't mean that we can't rejoice in seeing others succeed. I don't always love the way that street preachers operate in Adelaide, in Rundle Street Mall. Sometimes I find myself wondering about their motivations and and their way of doing things, but still I hope they succeed. And I heard a story the other day about someone who stopped with some mates to have a bit of fun heckling them, and he ended up being challenged by what he heard, and eventually he became a Christian. How great is that? There are some churches I have real questions about their theology and and sometimes even about their motivations. But still, I can pray that God will use them to advance the gospel because that's what really matters. I met a pastor of a church nearby where we meet. It's quite a a church that's quite a bit different to T&E. And and he made a a joke when I met him. He said, ah, so you're the competition then. And I knew he was just joking. But I said, no, we're not the competition. We don't compete with other churches. We long to see them faithful to Christ, and we long to see them advance the gospel, even if we have real and serious differences. Because we don't care about T&E's fame. We care about Jesus' fame. That's what matters. And if he's being made known in Adelaide's north, then we rejoice. Well, so far, we've seen that what really matters to Paul is that the gospel advances. And we've seen that he's telling the Philippians this to set them an example that they should follow. But really, we've just seen the tip of the iceberg. We've seen what sits above the surface of the water. Now Paul takes the Philippians below the surface. He allows them to see within, to see the great body of ice that buoys the tip above the surface. But these next few verses are easy to misunderstand. So we've got to do a bit of work so that we can properly see what really matters to Paul. So let's do that. Let's dive in. Paul's talked about why he has joy in his present situation. Now he goes on to talk about why his joy will continue into the future. Look at the end of verse 18. He writes, 
Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knows that because they're praying and because God provides his Holy Spirit anew for the challenge ahead, the future holds for him deliverance, and this deliverance really matters to Paul. But what exactly is this deliverance that Paul has in mind? Look at verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. The deliverance that matters to Paul is that he will not be ashamed, but instead he will have sufficient courage. Literally, he says that he'll be outspoken. For Paul, the deliverance that really matters to him is it's not, it's not deliverance from prison. It's deliverance from shame, deliverance from failing to speak about Jesus openly, fully, plainly, outspokenly. When he stands before Emperor Nero, he wants above all else to openly declare to him and to everyone listening that Jesus alone is Lord and God of the whole world and not Nero. Because that's what the gospel says. Jesus is Lord alone. He is Savior alone. And here at this point, we get to see what lies below the surface for Paul. Why does it really matter to Paul? Verse 20, he says, So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether Nero lets him live or orders his death, what Paul really wants is that Christ is exalted He wants Christ to be magnified through him no matter what. And this is our second point. It really matters to Paul that Christ is magnified. It really matters that Christ is magnified. See, what is it that would cause anyone to cross the pain line? Paul, the Philippians, us. What is it that would cause us to break above the surface of the water, make ourselves vulnerable and and risk advancing the gospel? What would cause you to say to your extended family or your adult child or your workmate, what would cause you to say Jesus is the only true Lord of this world and he alone deserves your full worship? Do you know what? It takes more than just the desire to see that person saved. It takes more than that. It takes seeing that what really matters is that Christ is magnified. If we don't see Christ's magnificence, and if if we don't see that what really matters more than anything else is that we magnify Christ, then we won't. In verse 21, Paul strips everything back to its most simple. He puts it starkly but beautifully. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It sounds radical, doesn't it? It sounds so extreme. And we're scared of radicalized people because we've seen some awful examples of it in this world. We've seen people radicalized for hatred and violence. But that's only one very narrow expression of radicalization. In another sense, we're all radicalized for something. And usually we're radicalized for some form of self-interest. We dignify it under the cover of caring about my family, my work, my wealth, my hobbies. But for the things that matter to me, I will gladly make sacrifices and I'll seek joy there 
And I'll live by those things. My life will be shaped by their demands. We all live for something. There's usually at least one thing that if we lost it, we'd consider life no longer worth living. That's being radicalised in a socially acceptable kind of way. To be radicalised for Christ means he is that one thing and he alone. Our life, our worth, our meaning is found in him. Our joy is found in knowing him. And to be radicalised for Jesus means walking in his footsteps, which means loving and serving others and dying to self-interest in order to live for him. Paul's not unique in saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus himself said it. He said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is every Christian's calling. Occasionally you see people dancing, but you you, you can't hear the music that they're dancing to. It happens more and more these days with people wearing those little earphone things that don't even have cables. And when you see them dancing but you can't hear the music, they look funny. They look strange. And depending on their dance style, they can even look scary. In 1927, the Times newspaper in London wrote, they who dance are thought mad by those who hear not the music. Christians going to Cambodia and leaving family behind. Christians going to Central Asia and risking their lives. And even Christians who stay here in Australia but who are willing to give up comfort and reputation to see Christ magnified. Christians who think to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you're not hearing the music, if you haven't yet discovered the greatness of Christ, well, then we probably look like someone dancing without music, maybe a little bit mad. Can I just point out in this part of the letter, we're not really hearing the music. We're just seeing the dance. We're seeing the way Paul's life moves to the music. But it's not until you get further into the letter that we really hear the music. It's not until we hear of Jesus, who although being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, and he did that for you. It's not till then that we really hear the music. This is who is laudable. This is the one we exalt because he's worth it. This is who we are radically following. And if you're hearing the music but it's not that compelling, it sounds faint in your ears, then probably you can't even imagine yourself feeling the same way as Paul does here. If that's the case, you need to come in and hear the music properly. Your picture of Christ is too small. Who he is and what he's done, it's too small. And only the cross is what will show you his true magnificence. You know this was one of Steph's favourite verses, don't you? To live is Christ, to die is gain. And if you knew Steph, it makes so much sense of her life, doesn't it? Knowing Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, that's the music that drives us to want to see him magnified. It's what drives us to want to see the gospel advance. And this brings us to our final point. It really matters to Paul that Christ matters to us. It really matters that Christ matters to us. We'll see a lot of 
of this throughout the rest of the letter. But we begin to see it here. Paul says in verse 22, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Now, Paul's not being morbid here. He's not moping around prison wishing he was dead. Death is staring Paul in the face. Some of us have faced that before ourselves, and all of us will face a time like that at some point. And times like that cause you to ponder, how do I feel about death? The reality is for believers, we can't lose. We can only gain. Because even in death, we gain Christ. And that's what Paul would choose if he had the choice. But he doesn't have the choice. He's in Nero's hands. We never really do have the choice, actually. But the reality is death can only be gained for us who believe. But Paul's not on about his own gain or his own advantage. His true passion is neither death nor life. He's on about Christ. And so in verse 24, he says, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. The church is very young and they still need him. And, and so in verse 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. It really matters that Christ matters to them. Just like it matters that the gospel advances, it also really matters that the Philippians progress in the faith or advance in the faith. It's the same word. And as they advance in the faith, their joy grows. And in verse 26, Paul says, their boasting in Christ will abound. Boasting sounds weird to us, but what Paul's saying is that he wants to see their pride in Christ, their joy in Christ, their glorying in Christ growing. Because what really matters is that Christ matters more and more to the Philippians. And of course, it's the same for us too. It really matters that the gospel advances because it really matters that Christ is magnified because Christ is what really matters. And it's critical that we see this too. There are clarifying times in life that point out what it really is that matters to you. Usually it's in the face of a crisis when your world seems to be falling apart and the mess of everything forces you to think, what is anchoring me in this storm? What should I be latching onto right now? Is it family? Is it a relationship? Is it something within me? Because if my anchor's family, well, the problem is that can fail. Families fall apart. They can be bitterly disappointing. Family members can even die. And if my anchor's a relationship, it has the exact same kind of weaknesses. And if my anchor is in myself, my strength, my resilience, my capacity, well, there comes a time in your life where you realize that anchor is perhaps the most prone of all of them to fail. In desperate moments, as one by one, anchors look like failing. The question, what will hold me when all else fails becomes more and more important? Because what will hold you tells you what it is that really matters. I've had a few desperate moments like this in my life one when I was 20 and my mum was dying and my family seemed to be falling apart. Another when I was 32 and I was looking at Evie, my daughter born three months early and thinking she may not live or if she does, 
She may face a life of disabilities. Times like that, they force you to ask the question again. So what really matters? So as my mum was dying, I was forced to ask myself, is my life bound here? Is what really matters to me above all else dying? As Evie lay so fragile, helpless, I was forced to ask myself, is my life found here? Is everything that matters to me at risk here? And at both times, I found the answer to be no, because I knew my life is bound up with Christ. My future, my hope, my joy, my life is in him. And at those times, I saw clearly that what really matters is him. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. But you know, what's true in the storm is equally true in the calm. To live is Christ. This is true right now. Is it true for you? Is it the shape of your life? Is your meaning and your joy found here? Is he what really matters for you above all else? Don't wait for the storm to discover that what really matters is Christ. He matters now. Let's live for him now. Magnify him now as we partner together to advance the gospel now.